Hi everyone, it's Nate. So glad to have you on this journey with us. I think what I'm realizing as we do this show more and more, we're now over a hundred episodes and we get so many messages from all of you. And now with the new private Facebook group that we have where um, patrons can come and hang out and we talk, we talk through a lot of the topics that we're going over on this show. So we'd love to have you um, join that as well. You can go to almostheretical.com and join that group. But one thing I'm realizing is that there, people are in so many different places. The, mm-hmm. the community of Almost Heretical listeners are in so many different places. They reach out and they they share things. And that's I love that too, that we see that in the Facebook group. Um, people asking questions. Uh, we, we threw out a question on the last episode, episode two of mm-hmm. the Woman series. We asked it on the show and we asked it on social and in the Facebook group. Um, can you think of women from the Bible, stories in the Bible where a woman uh, isn't isn't there just to serve the purpose of um, the the man in the story, right? Like, mm-hmm. what stories where is it is it is it centered on the woman that's in the story? And so we thought of a few, and you can go listen to that on episode two. But there was one uh, people kind of yeah were like, "Hey, you forgot one." That's true. A lot of people reached out to say, "What about Deborah?" Um, and that is a, a great point, a great character. She's a, a leader in Israel, and. Uh, really is the main character of her own story. I believe her husband is mentioned, but um, she's much more prominent as a character, as a judge. And so, yeah, that was a great a great character to bring up. Um, another character I wanted to bring up that nobody suggested because of some information that we all don't have is the, the character of Miriam. So Miriam mm-hmm. in the Bible is Moses' sister, which is so obviously she wouldn't have um, sought satisfied the criteria we were asking for of a, a woman who whose story doesn't revolve around their male counterpart. Right. But um, there's there's research that's been done, particularly by a woman named Hanna Tervanoko. If someone wants to look into her, she wrote a book um, with this in-depth research on the character of Miriam and the history of that character beyond just um, Exodus and. Historically, it it looks like Miriam was originally her own character, was not related to Aaron or Moses, and mm. that as the stories changed over time, which is just a natural part of oral cultures and literary cultures and manuscripts and all of that, um, Miriam became attributed to the family of Moses, and, and likely that is because most female characters were somehow um, a relative of, of a a male counterpart. So there's a lot more to that, but I just wanted to bring her up because she is a, a remarkable character in Exodus as, you know, she has this whole song of Miriam that's in right in there after they cross the Red Sea. And um, she does have, there's several stories involving her, which is pretty rare for a woman in, in the Old Testament or New Testament to be part of multiple stories. Um, so even though, you know, we might've written her off because, oh, she's Moses' sister. Originally, she may not have been. And so that's an interesting huh. one Wow, yeah, for people to dig into. So Denying Her Voice is the name of that book by Hannah Tervanoko, if anyone wants to do a little bit more research. And on that note, uh, that transitions really well into the topic that we want to get into today, which is specifically on voice and identity of, of women in the Bible We'll be focusing specifically, mostly in the Old Testament today. Voice and identity, because those two things matter a lot. So we're not just talking about whether women are present or whether they um, you know, wrote the Bible, which is what we talked about last week. But when, when they are present, 
do we have any clues to who they actually are beyond just a generic woman? And then do they say anything? Do they show agency? Do they come across as characters that have their own volition? So those, that's kind of what we're going to go through today, just looking at the Bible and then branching out into some texts outside the Bible that can shed a lot of light on this topic. Okay, so let's do it. So where are we starting today? Well, let's start back with a statistic that we referred to a couple times in the last episode, which is that of all of the named characters in the Bible, only 15% are women. Mm. So of everyone in the Bible who has a name, only 15% are women. And that already starts us off at just a pretty low low number. And we talked in the last episode about the impact of that difference, um, especially as it's read to children, just to see you know 85% men and 15% women. But another statistic that's going to be really significant in this episode is that of the entire Bible, of all the words that are throughout the Bible, only 1% of those words are voices of women being Mm -hmm. represented. So 99% of the Bible is either narrative, which is written by men, as we talked about before, or is um, speech by men. So 99% of the Bible is either narrative or speech of men. 1% is speech of women, which, I mean, if we want to get really technical, is recorded by, by men as well. Right. So as we, as we mentioned before, 100% of the Bible is written by men, but of that, only 1% even represents the voices of women. And there, there's a natural maybe level of kind of defensiveness of the Bible of like, the Bible's not that bad. Like, let's not drag it through the mud or something. And, and I totally agree. I mean, I want to dedicate my life to studying this book. And I, I think it's beautiful and valuable. And I'm going to end there on this ep- in this episode. But we have to start out with s- the simple fact that um, 1% of this book is the voices of women. And that's, that's the reality of it. Um, and if we ignore that, we end up devaluing women and really becoming complicit with the devaluing by not addressing it straight on. So let's talk about a few examples of, of women who don't have much voice in, in the Old Testament. And I think it's, it's one of those things that we've maybe read these stories over and over again. We've had them told to us since we were children. But until we go and actually look at it for this, this purpose of going, oh, do the women actually speak? We may not have actually noticed how silent they are. So let's start with an example of the story of David and Bathsheba. So we all know the basic gist that, you know, David sees Bathsheba bathing from the roof and calls her over and they have an affair. And uh, then she goes back to her house and then she tells him that she's pregnant. And then he has his her husband killed in this whole saga. Um, not a great story for you know, the man after God's own heart, but there's a little bit of redemption some few chapters later. But I bring the story up to go in that whole story, which is often presented um, very... Uh, mutually, like David and Bathsheba are kind of these equal counterparts that are both doing this together. Um, The only line in the entire story uh, that we have attributed to Bathsheba is the message she sends, I am pregnant. Those three words, three words in English, I am pregnant. That's the only thing that we hear from Bathsheba. We don't know what her response was when David called her. We don't know if she said anything to him when she came. We don't know anything about how she felt about any of the situation. The only thing we have is this notification, essentially. Mm. So there's this incredibly silent uh, for, for a character who's been um, 
in a lot of ways slandered through all of right. history for being this temptation that took down King David, um, which thankfully I think that that um, image of her is starting to turn. There was actually a, a recent article from Desiring God um, from John Piper about how you know we shouldn't read Bathsheba as um, as the temptress, but more as the victim. So I appreciate that there's maybe a he listened more to our cultural... episode uh, maybe oh, about David raped Bathsheba, um, which well, you can go check out. But... John Piper, if you're listening, I appreciate it. Thanks for the article. <laughs> Keep listening. Okay, so another example and a story that we're going to look at both inside and outside the Bible today is the story of Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, as as found in Genesis 12. And actually, Nate, I might have you just read the text of the story so that we are all familiarized with it, so that we'll be able to um, see the differences in the details between this version and another version that we'll look at a bit later. So this is Genesis 12, and if you want to read from verses 10 through to 20. Okay. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Thanks for reading that. Interesting story. Some one of those ones that I feel like we've always told and kind of been a little uneasy about. Like, huh, it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. the type of thing that the father of all Israel should be doing with his wife. <laughs> all right, exactly. Um, curious, I'm curious, on the version you read, and if you still have it pulled up, what's the little title that's given to it? Obviously, that's not obviously part of the Bible, but whatever the translators, what's the title of the story? Yeah, it's called Abram in Egypt in the NIV. It's okay, Abram in Egypt. All right. And then if you want to look up Genesis 20, we won't read the whole thing, but Genesis 20 is essentially the same story happening again, but instead of Egypt um, and Pharaoh, it's with a king named Abimelech. Um, If you have that up, what's the title attributed to this story by the translators? Uh, It's Abraham and Abimelech. So, I mean, as I said, those little titles aren't original to the text, but I find it curious that in both of those, Sarah's not even considered a character that's worth putting in the title. Yeah. And then you'll notice in the whole version that you read, um, what does Sarah say or do? I don't think she says anything. She doesn't say anything. And we don't see her do anything. Right. She's just this object that's passed between the two men, really. Right. Similar to the... Sheep and cattle and donkeys and servants and camels. Yeah. So we're going to come back to this story. These are just two examples, Bathsheba and Sarah, of stories that we've heard often about these women. But when you go and actually look at them, the women don't 
say anything or hardly do anything. There's very little agency that we can see about what they thought or felt in these moments um, in stark contrast to the men that are often given a lot of detail and dialogue. Um, Disclaimer, of course, that that's not to say that there aren't women in the Bible who do have voices. Um, There are quite a few, and we mentioned some in the last episode. There's Ruth and Naomi who have a lot of dialogue. There's Abigail who becomes the, the wife of David. Well, Deborah, as listeners pointed out. Yeah, there's Eve and the dialogue that she has in Genesis 3. So there are quite a few women in the Bible who do have voices, and I don't want to overlook that fact. But coming back to the statistic that we kind of started this off with is that despite all of those voices, they only make up 1% of the Bible. So we really do lack quite a quite a lot of women's voices. And so, and that's just the part that we're going to focus on today. We could spend a whole series focusing on what the women in the Bible actually do say. And there are people who have done that. There's a book called Bible Women, All Their Words and Why They Matter by Lindsay Harden Freeman. And she's an Episcopal priest who examines different women who speak throughout the Bible and specifically, uh, as the title says, all their words. So so there, there is a lot to be done with the words that we do see there. But today we're focusing more on the silences and why that's significant, because the silences make up 99% of the Bible, and I think that is a significant number. Yeah, I mean, I guess we've painted a pretty dreary picture of the Bible, and I think it deserves that for what it is. Um we talked about 99%, probably more, being the voices of men, the stories of men. But even that 1% is written by men. And so these voices of women and these stories of women are filtered through a man. Mm. And so is this just what we have? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, it is kind of just what we have when it comes to the Bible. Um, I've for a long, I mean, I'm a fixer. I'm a an Enneagram one for anyone who cares. And that's, I'm all about like, how can I reform this? How can I make this better? And so when it comes to the Bible, when I've, as I've slowly realized how um, male heavy it is, you know, my, my, my gut reaction is to, all right, let's balance this out. And very quickly you realize, well, you can't balance out a 2000 year old document because it's history. Like it's done. It's, we can't go back and interview the women who didn't get represented and I can't go and, you know, get a woman to write a book of the Bible that didn't exist. So, so in a lot of ways we do have to grieve what isn't there. And I mean, I remember the very first time that I um, saw that statistic about the 1%. I was just doing some research for my thesis and was suddenly like, oh, I wonder how much women do speak in the Bible. And when I pulled up the article that gave that 1% statistic, I remember just feeling like I had gotten punched in the gut and like it took my breath away. And I I started to cry because I just realized how irreversible this was in a lot of ways. And like that I couldn't, I couldn't redeem the Bible from the fact that it has so few women represented. Hmm. And, and that, and it made me realize that my whole life, I mean, at that point, it had been, you know, 20, 26 years of loving this book and trying to align myself with it and use it as my foundation. And that I hadn't even realized that my entire foundation as a woman was being built on these men with very, very little um, women. And so, I mean, it's hard to 
put it into words. But but as you're saying, like there isn't really a way to fix the lack uh, the lack of women's voices in the Bible. But the good news, I guess, is that the Bible is not all we have. Um, the there's so many more texts uh, in the Jewish the Jewish culture around the Bible, and we haven't really dug into those as a, a Christian culture because I think because we're afraid. Like as soon as you talk about oh these texts outside the Bible, it's like it's like it's this big scary heretical thing that you know how dare we even touch it? if we if we go there you know we're suddenly going to be like demon possessed or something. Right. It's like it's like they're bad and they're off limits and they're. They're not included because they're wrong. And we addressed this a little bit in episode two of the series. But yeah, I remember that. I remember like, ooh, books that aren't in the Bible. Like there's a reason they're not in the Bible. Stay away. Stay clear. They've led others astray. Right. When, you know, as soon as I describe a certain text as, you know, it's not in the Bible, it's it's like I'm suddenly saying, you know, this was rejected from the Bible. But that's not how the culture even worked. Like there these people were doing a lot of writing, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. They These were not the only texts that were being written at the time. Okay, so how do we know that? How do we know that there's other stuff that isn't in the Bible? Oh, yeah, because now we actually have a lot of them. Um, throughout history, we haven't always had access to ancient manuscripts that weren't preserved in the Bible. Obviously, the texts that ended up in the Bible have been copied for 2,000 years, so we have pretty good access to them. But since... 1947 and on, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've had such a different picture of what the literary culture looked like around the time of Jesus and just before. Okay, so first of all, Dead Sea Scrolls. I remember growing up and thinking, I don't know if it was taught this or just I thought this or what, but and I probably went on to teach others, but that it's like, hey, the Bible that we had, see, look how far far back it goes. We had the exact correct Bible the whole way. Mm. You can go back now a thousand years or more and say, we can match them up and they're exactly the same. And so we know that our Bible is completely accurate. And it kind of just down that line of like infallibility and inerrancy and like that these are exactly correct, exactly what we're supposed to have. We can go back a thousand years and see it. So we know that likely if we went back 2000 years, it'd be the exact same. Isn't this awesome? Like the caves confirmed it. What did you? What was your like understanding of like Dead Sea Scrolls before you went on to study them? I think they're pretty similar to you. I remember um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, not not all of them. I now know, but a selection of them were touring when I was probably eleven or twelve or something, and they were in Seattle. And I remember, you know, uh, my me and my homeschool buddies. We all our moms took us on a field trip up there to see them and. <laughs> Um, it's crazy now that I've studied them so much that I had no idea that these were going to be significant to me because at the time, I mean, I, they literally just looked like scraps of paper and I was very confused about why this was significant. I remember, um, my mom was actually crying looking at, um, one of these, I think it was a passage from maybe the Isaiah scroll or Mm. something that had the name of God. And it was very impactful to her. But I remember watching being so confused. I'm like, why does this even matter? Mm. And I've learned since that we do have a lot of misconceptions about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Although the one that you were just stating is actually somewhat true. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls did confirm a lot of accuracy um, in a lot of texts, Isaiah in particular. I mean, it's remarkable how consistent um, those have been for... 2000 years. Um, so in a lot of ways, that was really valuable for um, biblical scholars to show that um, there's been consistency, but they offer so much more than just 
a confirmation of the Bible. And the fact that as Christians, for the most part, we've only been interested in the biblical texts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's eliminated a lot of the other potential that we have to learn from. So Wait, hold on. Hold on. Wait, what, what do you mean? So what else was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls beyond just like the Bible? Oh, great question. All right, I'm just pulling the statistic out of uh, the recesses of my memory, so I, it could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that 13% of the texts found in the 11 caves of, so there were 11 different caves at Qumran where scrolls were found. Um, of all those texts, 13% were what we would call biblical texts. What? Texts that are still found in our Bible. 13%? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 13% weren't biblical texts. <laughs> what the heck? What, no. what other things were found? <laughs> there's so much. And there's a, almost all of them have been translated and published in some form now. So you can go online and see all of them. Like their fragments are scans. You can see everything. Um, but most of them are, well, there's a huge mix. A lot of them have to do with the people who lived at Qumran. So it's like regulations of their community and some of their traditions and some liturgy that they would use in their religious services, um, which it actually, it's funny how there, there's so much documentation about them and their lives and what they did, but we actually still aren't sure who they were. This mm -hmm. is like one of the greatest archaeological mysteries yet to be solved is who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we still don't really know. Most people, uh, most scholars would... Uh, conclude that it's probably a group called the Essenes, and that's the most common theory, and there's a lot of good reasons to agree with that, but we don't actually have it confirmed. So, but a lot of Essene-type documents just regarding their community. There was a, the community was called Qumran, and they were, the, the, we have some remnants of these buildings that they lived in, quite small, like it's not room for a ton of people, right there by the Dead Sea. And for whatever reason, they were writing a lot of scrolls and putting them in jars and hiding them in caves. We really don't know why, hmm. but we're glad that they did. So they wrote a lot for their own community, but then they were also just writing down a lot of commentary, essentially, on the Bible. So um, they have different forms of this in different Jewish literary traditions, but they would be, they would take a text such as Genesis or Leviticus, and they might do a, a type of commentary where they essentially take a line of the scripture text and then um, a few lines of their own thoughts. I mean, not necessarily that of the individual, but maybe what their community, how they interpreted that line. And then they do another line of scripture and then some of their own thoughts. And so this was a a form of commentary that they would do. I mean, that sounds pretty similar to like how a lot of people study the Bible, um, at least in my experience yeah. in the past. Like you have your Bible, you read a verse, you write in your journal about it for a paragraph or something, or you write in the, I never did this. I couldn't write in the columns of of the Bible, the margins, but um, I know a lot of people did. I just couldn't get, bring myself to do it. But anyways, that sounds pretty similar to how people kind of study the Bible. Well, I, I was a margin writer for sure. My Bible's all, all marked up, but I appreciate your uh, the sacredness with which you treated your pages. So well done. <laughs> Another way that they did commentary, and the one that I ended up studying the most, is simply through kind of what you could call reinterpretation. There's there's not really an official title for this type of commentary or this type of writing, and that's actually a big debate among the Dead Sea scholar world, um, is what do we call this type of literature? But an example of this literature that we're going to talk about today is called the Genesis Apocryphon. 
And what it is is essentially a retelling of Genesis that is not at all trying to um, replicate the document. Like it's very clearly uh, a retelling with different details and different lines and different, I mean, it's, it's like... It's like fan fiction or something? Yeah, it's totally like fan fiction. <laughs> Except a retelling of the story instead of like another, and then they did this other thing. Like it's just retelling the story, but it is sort of, that sounds like sort of fan fiction yeah. type of thing. I'm just trying to think of something that's comparable to what we have today because I don't think people are studying the Bible that way. So, yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, what would be kind of a modern parallel for this type of reinterpretation I'm talking about. And I'm uh, thinking about maybe Shakespeare would be a good example um, of this is, you know, he wrote these stories, these his plays hundreds of years ago at this point. But we still tell these stories over and over again. I mean, how many versions of Romeo and Juliet are out there? I mean, there's there's movies that we watch that are versions of Romeo and Juliet that are hardly even recognizable to the original form. But then also, I mean, there's, I think Romeo and Juliet's a great example of, you know, you might actually go and watch a movie of Romeo and Juliet that is very much the same story that Shakespeare wrote. Characters all have the same names. They still do the same things, but they're not saying the same words. And there's a lot of extra details that are put in because it's just a new retelling of the story. So that's actually a really um, good parallel for what's happening here with the Genesis Apocryphon. Apocryphon, crazy word that sounds kind of revelation-y, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. It is a, a Greek term that refers to essentially hidden knowledge. Hmm. Um, and uh, it was given, this. T- the title was given to this text because it was a version of Genesis that was new to us, essentially. But let's dig into this document because, to get back on why we're doing this at all, this is part of the wider Jewish literary culture around the Bible that gives us a lot of insight into how the readers of the Bible, texts that we're still reading today, the additional context they may have had when reading it that we don't have today because we aren't reading these additional texts. Right. Genesis Apocryphon is a special one that I studied because it actually is so different in the way it treats women specifically. And so that's what we're going to look at here. To set the stage um, for this is a, a fun tidbit for uh, people who've been listening to Almost Heretical from the very beginning. Genesis Apocryphon is very concerned with um, the Watchers and these these giants and Nephilim that are kind of mentioned in Genesis 6, very briefly. Right. So that's like the first seven or eight episodes that we ever did on this show. We started there. Yeah. Um, I think it's like we call it like the Divine Council, um, mm. where we're talking about these other gods and other beings and and how the Bible and the writers there were very okay with that. They just assumed that there was this other um, realm of beings. And so, yeah, you can check that out. It's very early, very different mm-hmm. than the stuff we're doing now, but um, <laughs> you can go back to the beginning and and check that out. Totally. And not only were the ancient people okay with the the Watchers and this Divine Council concept, it was actually a, a much bigger part of their perspective of the world, which for especially ancient Israel was was very significant as they became more and more concerned with being um, having a pure bloodline. Like they wanted to mm. um, show that ethnically or racially that these terms were, you know, it's, it's hard to use these modern terms on ancient people, but they wanted to be Israelites and they wanted, they were, it was very important to them that they were not mixed with other races. There's a lot of details involved here, 
that I will try not to get us too in the weeds about, but Genesis Apocryphon was written likely around 300 BC, which wasn't too long after um, Ezra, Nehemiah happened in that whole story. So for anyone who's not super familiar, that's when after the Israelites had come back from exile, Ezra particularly set up all these rules against intermarriage and even like mandated that people who had already intermarried with the non-Israelite local people mandated divorce and like abandonment of, uh, of their foreign wives. So after the exile, there was a huge growing concern for not mixing with other races. And we see that reflected in these retellings of Genesis because they use the watchers as kind of uh, the symbol of other races and why it's bad to mix with them. And, and that's going to tie into why they emphasize their female characters. I'll get into an example so we can sort of see what this all means. The first one that we want to look at is a woman named Batenosh. Um, she is the wife of Lamech, who is the father of Noah. So Batanosh is the mother of Noah. So the, the wife of Lamech, mother of Noah, that's a woman who's never never named in the Bible. She's not really, I don't think even mentioned as someone who has a story. But because Noah was a very significant character for the ancient Jews, so it became very significant to them to confirm that Noah wasn't mixed with the Watchers in any way. So in order to prove that, there's this whole big story about Lamech and Batanosh, his wife. The story, and this is this is about to get a, a little bit uh, PG-13, actually, so if you're listening to this with your children, um, maybe preview the next section. So what happens in this story? Uh, Batanosh gives birth to Noah, and he is glowing, like light shining off of him, and he stands up and starts to speak the praises of God, I think, something like that. This is not a normal way that children are born. And in Genesis Apocryphon, Lamech says, what is going on here? I mean, not, that's a paraphrase. But he then appro- he approaches his wife, Batanosh, and confronts her because he's concerned that she mated with an angel, essentially, and that that's why Noah is glowing and acting like such an abnormal child, mm. which, I mean, I think we can all identify with his concern at that point. <laughs> yeah, shocking. So, so yeah, he, he approaches her. Actually, I'm going to just read right from Genesis Apocryphon um, a little bit. It's from the perspective of Lamech. So he says, I, Lamech, became afraid and went to Batanosh, my wife. So Lamech essentially is confronting her, saying, you know, where, what is going on? And did you have relations with an angel or something? And then she implores him and she, she weeps and says to him to remember my pleasure in the heat of the moment and my panting breath, which is pretty uh, visual, sensual way of saying this. And what she's talking about, and then she actually goes and refers to it again for him later, later, and she's reminding him of my pleasure. Like, that's literally the phrase that's used. Mm. She is um, basically telling him, remember my orgasm, and like, so therefore I must, this must be your child. Which, to anyone listening, you might be thinking, wait, that doesn't really make any sense. Like, just because she was, you know, had so much pleasure and had this great orgasm, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not this is her child. Right. Um, so what this is actually telling us, it's kind of placing us at right where the authors were scientifically. 
way, way back, like probably when gen- our, our Genesis, Exodus, such and such, when those were written, the idea of conception was different than it was later, which is different than it is now. As scientific progress occurs, we have different ideas of how this all works. Sure. So one of the oldest forms was this belief that essentially a man's sperm was the baby and that the the woman's body was just a vessel for it to grow. So you can understand how in that line of thinking, the woman was not really as important in the identity of the child, which is a pretty consistent with this kind of patriarchal right. perspective. Yeah. But when you get more to the the more Greek era, so kind of a few hundred years before and after Christ, um, the idea of conception was, um, they essentially believed that both the man and the woman contributed sperm, um, something like that. And so they thought that how that happened, they believed that just in the same way that a male ejaculation contributes their sperm, they thought, well, when does the woman contribute her sperm, air quotes, it, uh, they believed that that happened at the woman's orgasm in a mm. fairly parallel way to a man. So what's happening here is they believe both man and woman need to have an orgasm in order for both um, both to contribute their part to a c- conceiving a baby. Uh, so she's using that as proof that like, yeah. because I had an orgasm, you know this is your baby, don't you remember? Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. Confusing to us in the 21st century, but makes sense then. Also, I mean... I think a lot of women wouldn't mind going back to that way of thinking if that was <laughs> everybody needed to. Everybody needs to orgasm if we want this to happen. Right. Um, so, so that's the in brief the story of Batinoche, and and I tell that not only because it's kind of interesting scientifically, but just to show how different that is in the way that it's written. Like it's it's giving um, actual voice to Batinoche. Like in quotes, she says, you know, it doesn't just say, you know, in Batinoche didn't like this it actually gives her you know she's saying no don't you remember that this is what happened and she's a very vocal provocative character who's pushing back on her husband and essentially advocating for herself in the situation right so that's that's how genesis apocryphon starts off at least the part of it that we have then we move into the wife of noah so we're, we're getting everybody's identities and names kind of moving down the line which is a lot different than the the Bible that we're used to, where it's primarily men throughout the genealogies. So yeah, the, so the genealogies. I remember one time doing a song. I think like in church performing. I think it was an Andrew what? Peterson song. Yeah, he has no this way. song where he goes through all the genealogies. So me and my friend like played it. We were worship pastors, and so we played it or whatever, and went through all. But like I don't even remember thinking at the time. Like as I'm going through this song, that there's like two women mentioned. In the whole okay, thing. that's actually, this is a great, um, I'm not sure which genealogy this Andrew Peterson song was, but... I thought it was Matthew, but maybe not. Okay, that's what I was going to say. While we're on the topic, why don't we pull up Matthew 1. You're not going to make me read all the names, right? Do you remember being like nervous when it was going to be your chan- your turn to like read something and you're like, you know, you're going around like, let's all read a paragraph, right? And then you're like looking, you're like counting ahead. You're like, okay, I'm like, oh, I'm like mm. four away. So let me see what's my <laughs> paragraph going to be. But then, you know, the Joker, like two ahead of you, read two paragraphs trying to like show off. (laughs) Yeah, threw it all off. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, no, now I'm getting the names one. And you're like, I don't, there's like three of these I don't know how to say. Anyways, 
I think a lot of us can relate. And I was, I was always the, uh, the nerd who, even before I took Hebrew, like I just, I just liked that kind of stuff. And so I was all about pronouncing the names right. But I discovered that you, you really did not gain any, you didn't gain any friends by suddenly being a great pronunciator. <laughs> were you the person um, that read two paragraphs instead of the one you were supposed to, <laughs> it, that threw me off and then I had no, to read a no, whole different I'm paragraph? I'm sure it wasn't me, but I would have been the person who would really like to say Manasseh instead of Manasseh because I knew mm. that they nobody in the ancient hebrew world was saying manasseh um but i didn't i i held back but i think i think you i think you were the two paragraph reader but okay just keep going. <laughs> i might have been oh gosh so anyway matthew one the genealogy of jesus the messiah the david the son of david son of abraham uh and then it has these three sections abraham to david david to josiah and then from babylon the exile to babylon down to jesus and yeah, okay, gosh, this is a lot of, I don't know. Anyway, Abraham, father of Isaac, father of Jacob, I'm kind of summarizing, but Jacob, son of Judah, Judah, father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, we got a woman in there. Perez, father of Hezron, father of Ram, father of Abinadab, father of Nashon, father of Salmon, father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Cool. Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, we got three. Obed, father of Jesse father of David, father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba did not get a name, but she's mentioned as Uriah's wife. So Uriah gets to be in the genealogy, but not Bathsheba. Um, Solomon, father of Rehoboam, father of Abijah, father of Asa, father of Jehoshaphat, father of Jehoram, father of Uzziah, father of Jotham, father of Ahaz, father of Hezekiah, father of Manasseh, father of Ammon, father of Josiah, father of Jeconia, and they all went to exile in Babylon. And when they came in exile from Babylon, Jeconia was father of Shealtiel, Father of Zerubbabel, who's, I mean, if you're looking for a name for a child, I'd say Zerubbabel should be on the top of the list. Um, father of Abihud, father of Eliakim, father of Azor, father of Zadok, father of Akim, father of Elihud, father of Eleazar, father of Mathan, father of Jacob, father of Joseph, husband of Mary. The, the, of the podcast players are clicking off across the world. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's read it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> If that was boring to you, then you're in good company. But I mean, all that said, the point was we the the line is through the men and the genealogies throughout the Bible. I mean, Matthew's not the only one. There's one in Luke and there's a ton throughout the Old Testament. For the most part, do not document the mothers or the sisters. I mean, I think that was one of the first things that uh, as I was starting to kind of open my eyes to the patriarchy in the bible that was one of the first things that i realized was that like the women were essentially unnecessary um when it came to documenting the people of israel and that that says a lot however the women are very necessary when you are an ancient jew who's trying to prove that your people are not mixed with another race and that they are pure israelite it's almost like a, a a happy accident that they were trying to prove that. So now we actually have these women, women and these names. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, the Genesis Apocryphon, this text that we're you know talking about, it's uh, these people are not like ancient feminists who are writing this and going, oh, let's put in this woman's name. Let's give her some extra voice. Like she really deserves to be represented. That's not what's happening here. Uh, there, It's a still a patriarchal purpose that's at play, which is that they want to prove their bloodline and prove that, their wives did not associate with other races or other species. But um, 
but the the result of that for us today is that we do have some additional literature that represents women, which is nice. So one of those is uh, Noah's wife in the Genesis Apocryphon, whose name there is Emzara, which interestingly enough, actually Batanosh, his mother, and Emzara, his wife, those names are not just random names that were chosen. They're the name Batanosh means um, daughter of man or daughter of like human. So mm. like specifically not daughter of angel or the watchers or something. Right. And then Emzara, that subtle, name subtle. means... Subtle, Just kidding. Yeah. It's mm-hmm, like pretty obvious mm-hmm. what they're doing, right? <laughs> pretty obvious. And Emzara means mother of humans, mother of descendants of seed, essentially. So both of those names are significant to the situation. And then Emzara is also given... Um, it's told who her her father is and the and so it's giving context to the fact that she's human <laughs> and not descended from the watchers um but that's a that's a it's you know it's said for a purpose but it's also unique not a lot of women in the bible do we know like when they're introduced into the story first for the most part they're not usually mentioned if they are mentioned they're rarely named if they are named they're very rarely like told who their family is so it's kind of a significant um change that's happening mm. but after emzara the next and final woman i want to look at from the genesis apocryphon is sarah and that brings us back to the story that we read earlier story of um abraham and sarah going down to egypt and we're, let's read it from the genesis apocryphon and you'll see how different um, the story is. So this is from Genesis Apocryphon, column 19. It says, And I, Abram, so it's from the perspective of Abram, dreamed a dream during the night of my entering the land of Egypt. I saw in my dream one cedar tree and one palm tree, a very beautiful one. And human figures came and tried to chop down and uproot the cedar in order to leave the palm by itself. But the palm restrained them when she said, Do not chop down the cedar, for both of us are from one root. And the cedar was left alone, thanks to the protection of the palm, and was not chopped down. I woke up from my dream in the night and said to Sarai, my wife, I've just dreamed a dream, and I am afraid on account of this dream. And she said to me, tell me your dream that I might know it. And so I began to relate this dream to her. And I revealed to her the meaning of the dream. And I said, they will seek to kill me, but you they will spare. So this is the favor which you must do for me in every place where we are. Say of me that he is my brother and I will remain alive by your protection and survive thanks to you. And Sarai wept over my words that night and did not want to go to Egypt with me. And she was very careful that no one should see her for five years. So that's pretty different. What, what do you notice right off the bat? Some differences between that story. That I means the beginning of the story. Right. Well, I mean, she talks. Read. She says things. Mm-hmm. She says what she does and doesn't want which is very different where from the the, um, the story we see in the Bible where she doesn't say anything or do anything. Right. And I mean, when we read it in the Bible, for all we know, Sarah was like, okay, yeah, cool. Good plan. Let's do it. Right. And in fact, a lot of um, retellings of it do see, do, do portray Abraham and Sarah as like kind of on the same team with this plan. Right. It's like this plan they had together. They, they schemed up together. Right. And granted, it also doesn't, like, it, it doesn't say anything at all about what Sarah thought. So even the author of this text that we just read, Genesis Apocryphon, um, they had to um, essentially decide what they thought Sarah was thinking or feeling. And, right. and they just chose as an author to literarily 
embellish the details. Um, and that's, I mean, this is, they're not saying that this is what actually happened. And that's kind of a more modern concept that we're constantly like, I mean, anytime I tell someone this, this story, they're often the first reaction is like, oh my gosh, is that what actually happened? But that's, it's the wrong question to be asking of an ancient um, text. And this, this is a literary adaptation. So this is written hundreds of years after the original Genesis story was written. So this person's not trying to say, this is what happened. Like Sarah actually didn't want to go to Egypt and, mm. you know, Abraham was awful and made her do it anyway. They're just going, maybe this is what might have happened. Like if I was there and if I was Sarah, maybe I would have felt this way. So so as we're wrapping up talking about Genesis Apocryphon, I guess I want to zoom out and, you know, explain again why I thought it was so important to bring up this Dead Sea Scroll that was, you know, dug out of this desert and why, how does that actually matter for us today? Um, and I think it is because when we are reading our Bibles, uh, and that's the only texts that we have, we start to think of them as the only story available and the only way of telling that story. And that's just not how the ancient authors viewed it. So like this story that we just read in Genesis Apocryphon, which has, you know, Batanosh and Imzara and Sarai, and they're all talking and saying things and they're all named. And like, that's, that probably would have been read by a lot of the Jews who were also reading the Genesis that we're familiar with. And not to say that they would have viewed it on the same level of authority. Like Genesis was definitely uh, a foundational authoritative text for the ancient Jews. But they it wasn't Bible yet. Like they didn't have a Bible yet. It was just another one of those texts. And it was, you know, one of their oldest, one of their most important, one of their most traditional. So it held a ton of honor and respect. But it wasn't necessarily in a sacred category that other texts weren't. One way of looking at it that a lot of scholars are using is essentially like this spectrum of authority. Like there's really authoritative texts for the ancient Jews, and then there's somewhat less authoritative texts, and then there's, you know, really not super significant, and then there's kind of just more interesting. Like they, so Genesis would have been a very authoritative text, but something like the book of Ruth probably would have been not as significant, but still like a, a good one to have on hand. And then, and honestly, Genesis Apocryphon, along with other texts like First Enoch or the Book of Jubilees, things that we haven't usually heard of in our Protestant world, those would have been fairly significant texts. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Yeah, I mean, we start we start by talking about how 99% of the stories in the Bible are about men, and and how even the 1% that do talk about women are written by men, and then we read this uh, these Dead Sea Scrolls that kind of have these retellings of stories where we do hear women named, and we do hear some of their desires of like, no, Sarah doesn't want to go. And we know that they were still a patriarchal people, and they likely still were concerned with the what the man was doing and the bloodline of the man and the genealogy of the man. And yeah, where does this leave us at knowing this information? And does it change what the Bible is? That, like, should we be retelling things and advancing forward? Like, where does this leave us? That's a good question and one that I've pondered a lot as I've studied this text specifically. Within much of Christianity today, the Bible, I'd say, is treated as the sole authoritative voice, um, and it's weaponized against women. I mean, I remember I've I've had First Timothy quoted to me um, by a male friend as he justified like not standing up for me to a sexist professor, and and it was just as if the Bible is clear that it doesn't really matter what women have to say. Wow. I've been told by Bible study leaders that contemplating a woman's experience in a passage, like trying to see something from a woman's perspective, can be an interesting mental exercise, but isn't really relevant to the meaning of the passage. Otherwise, it would have been in the text. Like, if the if the women aren't there, it's because God didn't need them there for this passage to be significant. <laughs> what? Wow. Um, and I, I'm one of the many girls who grew up with role models in the Bible who were essentially passive, silent wives for the most part. And and I didn't even notice. Like, it didn't occur to me and it wasn't pointed out to me that Sarai has no voice or emotion in the story of what is essentially her own trafficking. And I, I didn't ask where Noah's mother or wife or daughters were. Like in my subconscious, these women were somewhere between quiet or irrelevant. They, had, they didn't have much to say or they didn't have anything important to say. Wow. So I think that the reason why a text like Genesis Apocryphon or any of these other texts outside the Bible can be significant is because it shows us what we haven't been shown, and it kind of opens our eyes to something that maybe we didn't even realize we weren't seeing. And what I mean by that is you or anyone who has listened to this episode now, when you read the story of Abraham and Sarah, you're never going to read it again the same way. You're always going to think about, oh yeah, and then there was that other version where Sarah actually talks and she says, I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. So you start looking at these passages and these stories that we're reading. And even if it's not, you know, not this one, or maybe it's not, maybe another story doesn't have this, you know, other version or whatever, as we read, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you start to think about, I wonder what that character was feeling. Um, I wonder what this woman was thinking. Um, you know, I, I don't know that we're <laughs> um, aware of a retelling of, David and Bathsheba outside of modern Mm -hmm. stories that have been retold. But now when you read that and you read countless other stories that women were definitely involved in, Mm -hmm. you can start to ask yourself, what experiences are we not hearing and reading? That's so important and so valuable. And I think why I particularly wanted to study the ancient retellings of these texts. I mean, because we can we can retell stories today too. Like any of us could write a retelling and, and many do. And I think those are so beautiful and so valuable. Um, actually, in the courses that I've been teaching, uh, one of the kind of assignments options for the students is to take a, a woman's story and rewrite it. 
in a way that Hmm. um, tells their story better. So that's incredibly valuable. But I think, and even in those courses, like sometimes women are hesitant to do that because it feels like, you know, we're taking this into our own hands and like how we shouldn't be messing with the Bible and like, who are we to think that we could, you know, we should, like, isn't this just speculation essentially? But when you take a text like Genesis Apocryphon and realize this has been the process of understanding the Bible for its entire history, like even 2000 years ago and more, the ancient Jews were doing the same thing. Like the only way they had to understand the Bible better was to retell it and to add details and to start thinking about what would this person have said. And, and, and that in this case included an expanded, um, expanded view of women. Um, and I think that that's valuable. And I think we don't need to be afraid of pointing out what's missing in the Bible because they've, the Jews have been doing that for 2,000 years. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. I think that this is where biblical studies is actually not just a, a, a nerdy thing that people who like the Bible should, you know, enjoy, but I think it's just actually needed in the real world. Essentially, I mean, the Bible has essentially been this dominant voice whose authority has been enough to silence all other voices, particularly the voices of women. I mean, back to our 1% statistic. Right. Like this is a 100% essentially male voice that has um, caused the silencing of women. Yeah, I mean, whether or not the version of the Abram and Sarai story in the Genesis Apocryphon actually happened or not if you know if there's really this missing piece that we just didn't have um, or it's probably just this retelling right but it does feel like it connects in to the me too movement that we Mm. have experienced these last five six years here where it's reminding us to listen to women's voices it's bringing these voices to the forefront voices that for a long time were silenced forgotten pushed away pushed aside they are in the forefront now. Some people hate it, right? Like some people hate that these voices mm-hmm. are getting power. And this is where I love platforms. As frustrating as like Twitter and Facebook can be, um, this this is mm-hmm. the thing I love about those platforms that is that it levels the playing field. And anyone with a story that maybe in the past didn't have the power to get that story heard or get published by uh, a, a newspaper or a magazine, or they can now share that story and mm-hmm. people can push that to the top and push that to the forefront. And so um, it does feel like it, it connects to me with, yeah. um, with the story of Sarai and, and these voices that we just never heard before. Yeah, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in a sense, is almost like that, um, this, this Me Too moment where a bunch of women's voices that have always existed but that had been silenced, even in this case, just silenced because they were hidden in a cave and we didn't know they were there. Their voices now exist and they're saying, we have stories and we we were here and we... And in the case of Sarah, it's very much her saying, I was not... I was a victim in this situation. I did not want to be part of this. And and we've never seen that perspective before. Yeah, like if that, if that uh, cave had been discovered and if this text had been discovered hundreds of years earlier, every time this story is preached, we probably would have heard that just growing up. We probably would have heard this other perspective, perhaps. And it would just shape our understanding of what else was going on in these stories. And maybe it would change how we look at other biblical texts and other stories as well. 
And I think why this is so important to me, the topic of voice, is because we're really teaching women and girls whether or not their voices matter. And and as I've said before, you know, I was that that girl who soaked in the Bible. And looking back now, I realize that if anything, I subconsciously learned that my voice didn't really matter. But there is a way, a way forward with all of this, I think. And I think part of that is to, as a culture, especially the Christian culture, become more familiar with um, the documents that filled out the Bible in the, the time that it was written. Like reading something like the Genesis Apocryphon isn't this like move against the Bible. It's not like a step outside the church or yeah. into some like dark, dangerous realm. This is just a text that would have been, I mean, it's kind of like how we read, you know, C.S. Lewis or A.W. Tozer nowadays. Like they, they're just other religious texts that were part of the culture at the time that give us insight into how the ancient Jews were reinterpreting and reading these stories. And they were learning to see women as more significant. And just because we lost those texts doesn't mean that we don't now have the chance to to bring them back in and start incorporating them into our understanding of the Bible. Mm. And lastly, to as I said, I was going to end on a end on a good note for the Bible because we've really kind of been slamming it a lot in this episode. The Bible is still actually incredibly valuable even for the topic of women. Um, sure, it's still true that only one percent of those voices are women, but um, that's that's ninety three women in the Bible who are given a voice, and while that's a lot fewer than the men, there are not many, if any, other ancient documents that contain that many women speaking. Hmm. You know, it's it's a low number in comparison to the male counterparts, but it's still 93 women. Like, that's a lot hmm. for um, an ancient document to hold. And so, while there's room to grow and there's other perspectives and other texts to to add in to our understanding of the Bible, the Bible is, is a, a good foundational place to start. For a 2,000-year-old document, it doesn't include women and their voices, and that's important. Mm, that's true. All right, so we've talked about voice now. We've talked about the gender of God. So where is this series taking us next? Yeah, the next couple episodes coming up are going to be some big, big-hitting topics, and we're going to talk about um, the objectification and sexual violence toward women in the Bible, a topic that is often uncomfortable, and, and we're going to handle it with with care and incredible sensitivity, but also in a way that I think will be both healing and empowering. And then later, we're going to dive into the New Testament, which I'm incredibly excited about, and look at not only how, how are women portrayed in the Gospels, how does Jesus interact with women, what does Paul have to say about women, but also looking at some texts surrounding the New Testament as well, and some some pictures of women that we've maybe never seen before, such as Mary Magdalene. So I can't wait to get to those. All right. Well, thanks for coming along on this journey with us, having so much fun in this series. If you have thoughts and questions and um, pushback or whatever it is, we'd love to hear that. You can join the Facebook group that we have. It's a private group just for patrons. You can go to almostheretical.com and click on the community button, and we'd love to see you in there. And if you want to jump into the next Zoom call that we're going to do, it's coming up very soon. You can go to almostheretical.com and just click on Zoom. And those are for patrons. We have so much fun. We do breakout groups. We really get into a lot of the topics from this show in a deeper way. Shelby and I are on those, and we'd love to see you on those as well. 
All right, we'll catch you next time.